So as we move through our passage in Ephesians, we come to that section on slavery. The Bible has a lot to say about slavery, but you'd think, well, in the 21st century, what's the point? None of us are slaves, though some of us may feel that way. When it comes to the reality, we know we're not slaves and none of us are slave owners. So why don't we just sort of skip this paragraph and shoot on to the next one? And those of you that have Bibles will see the next passage. The next paragraph is much more exciting. It's all about spiritual warfare. Why do we linger here with slavery? Well, as a number of you know, slavery is a much more contemporary issue than you would think. If you Google how many slaves there are currently in the world, you will get estimates of between 40 to 45 million people. Now, let's just pause for a minute. If there are just under 5 million people in New Zealand, that is for everyone in this room, there are eight slaves. And everyone through Cromwell and the rest of New Zealand. It's a staggering number, isn't it? Staggering number. Just under three quarters of these are children. They are 18 years or under. 18 million, just under half, are in India alone. Many, many of those who are in slavery are kidnapped young girls forced into the sex trade, while others are in sweatshops, factories, forced marriages and the like. In the Zoom call that I had with the Hansons, it happened to come up in the conversation that one of their team members in Operation Mobilisation where they're working is focused on human trafficking. So I asked them, what are the big issues in Europe? And they said, number one is girls being sold or kidnapped for the sex trade. And after that, it's immigrants, where immigrants are promised jobs, but their passports are taken from them, and then they are forced to work for no wages or ridiculous hours for next to nothing. And this is where it comes a bit closer to home. A few years ago, when Judy and I were living in Auckland, uh, our local Indian was called the Masala. And it was always it was a good price, especially for Mission Bay. And we would go there. And, but great was our surprise when the news broke that the owners of this chain of restaurants were arrested because they had taken the passports away from their workers, had underpaid them, seriously underpaid them, and had threatened to go to immigration if they complained. You may remember that. That hit the national news. And so slavery is not something that is distant from us in 21st century New Zealand. So whether it's a kidnapped young girl in the sex trade in Mumbai or a vulnerable immigrant trapped in long hours for no pay, it's important that we find out what God's word says about slavery. So this morning we're going to look at what the Bible says about slavery in general before focusing on a passage in Ephesians and some take-homes. So we're going to look at the Old Testament on slavery. Then we're going to do look at the New Testament on slavery then slaves and slave owners from Ephesians 6 before some of those take homes. So what does the Old Testament say about slavery? And maybe in the back of our minds, we recall that historically the Bible has been used by some people to justify slavery. So maybe there's a bit of a caution as we come particularly to the Old Testament. And at first glance, the Old Testament does appear to condone slavery and that some of the heroes like Abraham and Jacob, they had slaves. And also the fact is that the Old Testament does not come out and directly condemn slavery. However, this is 
far too simplistic. In a world back then when slavery was commonplace, we find that the Old Testament challenges slave owners and gives slaves rights where they had no rights. So let's start looking at Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. This is one of the laws that was given by Moses. Kidnappers must be put to death, whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. So uh, Israel, if you kidnap person to make them your slave or kidnap someone and then on sold them, so you'd make a bit of cash, that punishment was so serious that it was by death. Kidnapping to supply the slave market was a problem in Bible days, just as it is now, and the Bible, without hesitation, condemns kidnapping, which makes you wonder about the transatlantic slave trade over 400 years where 12 million Africans were kidnapped. That doesn't count those that died in transit. 12 million kidnapped. Sadly, by some countries that claim to be Christian. How could you possibly ever justify that with that so very clear? To the church's credit, it continually criticised the practice and it was through Christian men and women fighting hard that that slave trade was stopped. But still, questions need to be asked. Now, if kidnapping was banned in Bible days, how could an Israelite, how can a person of God possibly own a slave? Well, Leviticus 25.39 tells us how. Again, this is one of the laws that Moses gave. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, then there are some regulations. So in a time where there was no social security or no government benefits, what did the poor and the destitute, what could they do? What were their options? Well, they only had two. Likewise, there were no banks or, or money um, uh, there were no bankruptcy laws. So if you were running a business and you got into debt, what could you do? Well, again, two options. And the op- first option, if you were very poor or in debt, was to have a family member bail you out. <laughs> Still works today, really, doesn't it? The second option was to sell yourself in slavery. So let's say that you uh, owed $50,000, the equivalent of $50,000 New Zealand, couldn't declare bankruptcy in those days. You couldn't get a loan. What do you do? You go to someone with money, either the person you owed the money to or someone else with money, and say, I will sell myself and my family to you to clear this debt. And that was an acceptable practice. Now, all the other nations did this as well, but once you were sold as a slave, you lost all rights. They could beat you or maim you, even kill you, and there would be no legal kickback whatsoever. They could on-sell you. They could split your family up. You had no rights. But God said to his people, this is not going to be the way for you. You will not treat your slaves this way. As soon as an Israelite slave owner acquired a slave, he had to plan to set that slave free. And we see this in our reading, Deuteronomy chapter 15 from verse 12. It says this, If a fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, sells himself to you, we now know the background, why someone would sell themselves to slavery, and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. 
doesn't matter how much money they owed you or whatever the arrangement was at the beginning, they could not serve more than six years, verse 13. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor and your wine press. Isn't that amazing? Someone has come to you poor or in debt. They've worked for you a maximum of six years. When you send them out, you send them out with a helping hand. Fresh start. Get on their feet. Give to them as the Lord your God, this is verse 15, has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. What does redemption mean? Rescue from slavery. So as soon as an Israelite bought a slave, he was counting down to setting him or her go free and also providing a helping hand for a fresh start. Now it's impossible to Overestimate how radical and different this was for all the local customs of the surrounding nations. It's just, a, it's just impossible for us to really understand how radical this and the other laws that Moses, that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai concerning slavery are. And if we had time, we could look at the rights that the law of God gives to slaves, where previously they had no rights and more boundaries that were set upon the slave owners. Why? To ensure that their slaves will be treated as humans and not property. So, in summary, the Old Testament forbid kidnapping for slavery. And slaves were to be treated as hired workers, not property, with the view of being released after six years. Now, I don't want to sugarcoat this too much. It still was not the best thing to be a slave in a Hebrew household. There were times when the Jewish slave owners totally ignored the biblical instructions and treated their slaves just like the other countries. You can read in Jeremiah. Jeremiah takes the slave owners to task and says, you're not following these laws, these regulations. Get your act together. Treat your slaves well, as the word of God says. Nehemiah is the same, telling off the slave owners. So it was difficult to be a slave. It wasn't easy, but there were rights and responsibilities and protections laid down by the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? What does the New Testament say about slavery? Well, the reasons for being a slave were similar. But the New Testament also makes it clear that where possible, slaves were to get free. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 21. The context is Paul is saying, remember when you were saved. Remember your conversion experience. What were you doing then? Were you a slave when you were saved? Were you free? Were you working at home? Were you working in a business? What? This is the context. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Isn't that very practical of Paul? If you have the opportunity to gain your freedom, grasp it with both hands. Verse 22, he goes on to say, For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freeman, free man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Typical Paul writes something practical and then goes on this wonderful theological tangent. That's why we love him or find him frustrating when you're trying to read him. So what's he doing here? He's actually doing something quite subversive. He is redefining and turning upside down the world's view of the slave and a slave owner. 
He was saying, if you're a slave, it is an honour because Jesus has set you free. If you're a slave owner, don't get too puffed up in pride because you are now a slave to Christ. So imagine a church in Corinth. A number of slaves would be sitting there, a number of freed people, some wealthy people, a scattering of wealthy people. And he's told these wealthy people, you're a bunch of slaves to Christ. Now, that's an insult, pretty significant insult. I was trying to think of an equivalent. And I think if I was here preaching and saying, use the illustration and said, it's just like you guys would be Crusaders supporters. Don't think I'd have a job on Monday, would I, if I said that? (laughs) Yep, rebellion in the cheap seats. At least uh, it's a way to go to upset those people that are giving to your church well, isn't it? But Paul said, oh, I don't mind if the collection goes down a little bit. You slave owners, you are slave to Christ. You were bought at a price. And not only this, this new church, the New Testament church was so subversive because what they would do on a Sunday, they would meet in the evening. Why? So the slaves who couldn't come during the day could be part of it. All they had to do was meet at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and that would rule out all the slaves. But they didn't. They'd meet in the evening when often slaves and households could get a little bit of time off. You know what else they did? The slave owners and the slaves and the freed people, they all sat round in a meal and they ate together. Never happened outside the church. Do you know when the church flourishes, slavery is undermined and eventually abolished for exactly this reason. Take a while, but where Christianity flourishes, Slavery is abolished. Paul redefines our status, saying that we are slaves to Christ, no matter whether we're free or not. And then, they were, because they sat around the table and had a meal, this was reinforced every Sunday in their worship. Now, this brings us to our Ephesians passage. And we will see that the Ephesian passage fits very comfortably into what the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches about slavery. So let's turn to that. First, Paul writes to the slaves, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you, as slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. And Paul's point here is that for Christian slaves, no matter how menial their work was, it was never wasted because they were working for a greater master than their earthly owner. They were working for Christ themselves. And it's highly likely that their earthly master would never reward them. They might work a 10-hour day, hard out, you know, out on the, in the fields or whatever, and their master would never even acknowledge it, let alone say thank you, let alone give them a cold drink or something. But that's not so with Christ. He will reward the slaves for the most menial tasks that they did. Why? And this is key because it's mentioned twice in the passage, because they are working as to Christ, working to Christ. Slaves would work hard, work well, work with enthusiasm, 
as to Jesus. Let me give you an example of this. No, not a slave. The 17th century friar, Brother Andrew, learned to love menial chores that he was associated with in the monastery, mainly in the kitchen. Now, Brother Andrew's classical devotional book, short read, wonderful read, is called Practicing the Presence of God. And in this book, Andrew expresses the delight he had in kitchen work because he learned to practice God's presence in the simple, repetitive tasks, knowing that they were an act of worship as well as an act of service. It's a real mindset change, isn't it? So Christian slaves were to work first to Christ as an act of worship and service, and secondly, to work for their owners. What a high calling to be a slave. Now, what about masters? If Christian slaves were to work with respect, work with enthusiasm, to work with when they're not being watched as to the Lord, what about Christian slave owners? Verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Now, again, for the listeners, the people in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, most of them were Gentiles, and they had never heard this before. If you were a Jewish Christian, you would have had that tradition of the uh, laws in the first five books about slaves, so you would know this. But for the Christians that came from the gentle world, the whole issue of putting boundaries on slave owners and rights to slaves was just new, mind-bending. But they were inspected to treat their slaves in the same way as to Christ. As Jesus is your master, Christian slave owners, you must treat them well because our heavenly father has no favorites. And so taken together with the rest of the Bible's teaching on slavery, this passage in Ephesians continues to place boundaries on slave owners where there were none, expecting slave owners to treat their slaves well because they were also slaves to Christ. And it's like this. So if, you go, if you're in the Old Testament and you're a slave owner, it's treat your slaves well because you used to be slaves in Egypt before I, the Lord your God, set you free. Now in the New Testament is treat your slaves well because you are a slave to Christ and he has set you free. So this is the biblical teaching on slavery. Much more could be said, but that's an overview and an opening up of our passage today. So what are our take-homes? Well, the first of the two take-homes is carrying this across to the workplace, workplace behavior or work place ethics. Even though this passage was written to slaves and slave owners, the principles are very applicable to the 21st century workplace. I'm going to adapt the passage slightly and replace the word slave with workers. So put yourself in this place. So Ephesians 6 verse 5 adapted. Workers obey your employers with deep respect and fear. Nah, it's way too serious, isn't it? That's a little bit over the top. I think if we just use the word respect, I think that would work, wouldn't it? Workers, obey your employers with respect. Then it goes on to say, serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all time, just not when they are watching you. 
as slaves of Christ, do the will of God for, with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of you for the good you do, whether we are workers or employers. Very practical, isn't it? Very practical. In our jobs, we're to work for the Lord first, with all our energy and enthusiasm, when he's not watching or she's not watching. And when we do, not only will we honour Christ, not only will we be worshipping Christ, but we will be a tremendous witness to our colleagues and peers. They'll know whether you're a Christian or not. They'll know whether you're slack at work. They'll know whether you're mucking around when the boss is not looking. They'll not know when, you know, whether you're enthusiastic or not. And you can be, you have the opportunity to be a wonderful witness. An accountant had a little sign on his desk, and this is what this sign read. Worship begins at 8 a.m. Why? And a lot of people used to ask him why, and this was why. When he sat down at his desk every weekday at 8 a.m., he was aiming to be the best accountant that he possibly could. Competently, ethically, not overcharging his clients, not looking for wiggle room in the tax laws, but ethically. Because for him, 8 a.m., that's when his worship started. Because he wanted to be the best accountant that he could. And do you know, there's a significant biblical truth in that attitude. It requires a real resetting of our brain cells. <laughs> to move to this place where our secular work is an act of worship, whether it be in, on the vineyard or the orchard, or whether it be teaching in front of a bunch of kids, whether it be in the office, whether we are non-paid, whether we are a homemaker. You see, there's this false hierarchy in the minds of many Christians when it comes to work. Uh, we think that in God's eyes, missionaries at the top, followed by... Ministers are second, followed by youth workers and family workers like Phoebe and Mandy, and then secular work, and then at the bottom, what's at the bottom? You're non-paid, yeah, homemakers and such. Now, this hierarchy is rubbish. It's just something that we've acquired in our culture for various reasons, and sometimes some people just seem to associate it with the church for some reason. It's rubbish. That's not the way God works. We all know that... You can have a minister who loses his focus on Christ. And even though he's going through the motions, even though he's got a title, you know that's not God-honouring. And we certainly know some homemakers that do an amazing job at nurturing the children, looking after the house, being involved in community activities, and they do it for Christ, and it is amazingly God-honouring. So this hierarchy we need to throw out the door and rewire ourselves to know that no matter what you turn to your hand to, an honest day's work done for Christ is a wonderful act of worship and is, an, is, is completely agreeable and acceptable to our Heavenly Father. Now, what about employers? Let's put them through this routine. Let's adapt Ephesians verse, chapter 6, verse 9 for employers. Employers, treat your workers in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same employer in heaven. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? don't think God's ever been called employer in heaven, but we'll run with that for the moment. And he has no favourites. Now, what's key here 
is that employers set the example. Notice that the verse says, in the same way. So employers are also to work with enthusiasm and when others aren't watching them competently and professionally and as to the Lord. And when they do, they will earn the respect of their workers and they will know that you're a Christian and it will be a tremendous witness. And so we can carry these principles from Ephesians chapter 6 into the modern day workplace. That's our first take home. Second take home is against human trafficking. I had hoped to talk about some Christian organisations that are doing an amazing job against human trafficking. Just run out of time, which is normal. But I'd like to promote Wakatipu Presbyterian Church, Ian Guy. Uh, that's the, the Queenstown Church. They have wonderful support for a Nepal-based organisation that is actively working against Nepalese young girls being kidnapped and taken to India. There's quite a bit of kidnapping and going across the border, and so they're actively working. And I know Ian's taken some teams across, and there's a give a little page. I'll send, I'll send that link out through an email if you'd like to go and have a look at there. But there are a number of wonderful Christian organisations that are actively working against human trafficking. Our encouragement to give that some thought and maybe support in ways that you can. I'd like to finish on a personal note too on um, the slavery issue. Uh, when I was in India in 2007, our team spent 10 days in Mumbai looking at ministries to the urban poor. And the prevention and the rescue of young girls from the sex industry was part of our focus. And there's a whole bunch of stories that I could tell you, both sad stories but stories of hope as well. And our minder for that uh, 10 days was a social worker, Christian social worker called Mario. Wonderful chap. And he had this special license. So that meant that he had the permission to accompany the police on the raids. It was illegal for anyone 18 or under to be a prostitute. And the police could raid and take the girls away. The problem was a lot of money, gangs, police were corrupt. So he would go along. And then there would be some girls there, and the, and the owner would say, no, they're over 18, and the police would say yes, and Murray would say, no, <laughs> they're only 13. They're coming with me. Or there would be a door in the brothel that the police wouldn't knock on. So Murray would say, oh, I'd like to see in that door. And they'd say, no, you don't want to see in that door. It was a risky job when you're going up against corrupt police and the gangs in Mumbai. Yeah, amazing guy. Anyway. What do you do with these girls that he's rescued? I mean, what happens in India, they've often been come from all around the country, and if they do know where they, they come from and the parents, the parents often don't want them because there's that whole stigma of having their 17-year-old daughter coming home who's been a prostitute. Just, just, it's, a, it's a cultural problem. So this is St. Catherine's Orphanage in Mumbai, where Mario took us to, just to see what happens with the rescued girls. And I remember going around... And, you know, some were doing their maths homework because it's a school as well. And I'd come from a Catholic school just a couple of years before. It was lovely to be in a Catholic school environment and the uniforms were pretty similar and my daughter was a similar age. And I happened to look over one of their shoulder and they were doing maths homework. If you've ever seen a quadratic equation, you will never forget them again, even if it was your worst nightmare. And so I sat down and ended up helping these girls with their homework. We had no idea what we were saying. They didn't understand English, and I'd understand them. And 
They were just lovely young girls, reminding me so much of my oldest daughter. And, you know, that broke my heart because my daughter was a similar age and just a year or two before she had been wrestling with quadratic equations. But these girls had seen a darkness and a horror. These girls were rescued from prostitution, forced prostitution for two or three years. You'd never know it on the outside, but on the inside, they were very different than my daughter. And I'm so grateful to God that my daughters lived in New Zealand. And I'm so grateful to Mario. Mario was helping at the school and he met a lovely young lady, a young teacher, and they married. And they had a couple of their own children. And both Mario and his wife working. Christians working against trafficking. I'm so grateful for Mario. I'm so grateful for his wife. And I'm so grateful we can make a difference. Through our prayers, our concern, support, we can make a difference. Most of all, I thank God who has set you and I free from the slavery of sin and death that we might have everlasting and abundant life. Let's pray.